story behind that is often just as special as the photo you end up taking. And there's like this magic in that moment. And you can really see that that's what kind of draws people back to the sport. And the, those moments are so rare and you can't make that happen. It just happens. Like it's not a contrived thing. You can never go out and recreate it. It's just this really special shared moment. And this is episode 124 of the Training for Ultra podcast, my interview of Hillary Matheson. Thank you to the show's newest sponsor, Kogala. If you're not aware of the brand, I'll probably leave a link in the show notes, but you've heard me talk about lights probably throughout all the Triple Crown. Anytime you're doing a 100 miler and longer, light is actually very key um, so you're not tripping over stuff and hurting yourself. And it's just, honestly, it's like a safety and comfort thing. But I've used the Kogala light on a waist belt throughout the Triple Crown of 200s. And, you know, I really like working with the company. I was skeptical of their light to start with. And after using it for so many races, I am entrusting it for my 2020 races, which, yeah, there's going to be over a thousand miles of races, which... My coach, Matt Daniels, is a little nervous about. (laughs) He still talks to me, though. That's good. Uh, But thank you to Kogala. It's really nice to team up for 2020 with a company that I'm using your product regardless if, uh, you know, you're you're doing ads with me here. So I appreciate you guys. Again, check out the show notes. I'll leave a link also for a discount code if you're interested. Big thank you to Exoskin. Always enjoy, again, you know, these are products that I'm using myself. They're toe socks. On a lot of my shorter runs, I'll just throw on regular exoskin socks. Their calf sleeves are amazing, and I really like their base layers. I just got a uh, skull cap in the mail. Tried that out because it's been a little cold. And I just like the antimicrobial um, properties of a lot of their materials. They last long, like a long time, but then... You can use their products and they don't stink after just one use. So they're really high quality products. If you're interested, you need a discount code T, the number 4U20 for 20% off. Appreciate Exoskin. Big thank you as always to Hammer Nutrition. I will be eating a gel or two and a lot of Perpetuum from Hammer Nutrition throughout all of 2020. And yeah, quick shout out on their vitamins and supplements. Check those out. Those are um, those are huge. I mean, it's a good insurance policy. If you're missing one small thing in your diet, it can affect your whole life. Ultra runners need ultra and trail runners need to be aware of that. So, a big thank you to Hammer Nutrition. And then Candace Burt and I had a long phone call, and I'm really you know we're just catching up. If anything, she's so busy. I think she's running hurt right now. But I'm excited to have Destination Trail on board for 2020. So. Excited to make the announcement. I am highly, highly likely going for Orcas Island 200. I've wanted to do that race for a long time. And I'm also, I'll be at Moab 240 running that race. So two destination trail races are on my calendar. Check out if you're on the West Coast or you're thinking about traveling. These are some of the best races on the planet. So definitely check out Destination Trail. They're not just 200 milers. There's all sorts of distances and Candace has kind of found the best trails around in those areas. So I can speak from, you know, personally doing well over 
probably 900 miles of her races so far in the four events that I've done. Just well-run organization. So appreciate them. And I mean, last but not least, I mean, I love collaborating. I think this Amazon TV show that Ryan Clayton and I are putting together could be something special. So check, you know, keep an eye on that. I'll let you know when we, you know, have something that's viewable. I think we'll probably have a trailer out at some point on Ryan's YouTube channel, but I love collaborating and not enough people within our community do that. And so, I mean, it's sort of what Candace Burt and I are doing. We're going to do some collaboration in 2020 and then Ryan Clayton and I, there's not many film guys that, you know, work together and, you know, give feedback to each other and try to edit film. And we're making it a TV show on my personal triple crown of 200s in 2019. And hopefully we're possibly going to talk to some bigger, bigger players. Uh, we'll see uh, within TV. So whatever the outcome is, I, I think it will become available here shortly. So big thank you to Ryan. And last but not least, thanks to the Patreon supporters. You guys know who you are. We have those closed, closed, closed Facebook group conversations. And I'm just hugely appreciative of you guys making this all work. So thank you guys. Enjoy this episode with Hillary Matheson. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect the shit out of that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. And that was a moment I, I can look back on now. And uh, that was one of my favorite moments, getting a foot massage by Hayden at mile 62. This is um, a fan of yours, and I'm just calling in to express my admiration. It's Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Mako, and we are live. And you're listening to Training for Ultra podcast. This is Anime Flynn, and I'm here talking to Training for Ultra podcast. Yeah, it's like really, I just need to catch up with Rob. 100 miles is not that far. I, I thought oh. it was a joke, actually. It, it is. I thought it was one of your jokes, yeah. It is a joke. Okay. <laughs> okay. So classic. Oh my god, because literally thing would be like, beep, beep, beep. Mother, mother, beep. Mother, mother, beep, beep. Mother, beep, mother, beep, 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 beep. One, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> Training for Ultra Podcast. I'm Sally McRae, also known as Yellow Runner. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra Podcast. I'm joined here by Hillary Matheson. She's an athlete across just a bunch of different sports, but then also a photographer, graphic artist, writer, just all around super talented person, truly an inspiration. I've been meaning to chat with her ever since, you know, meeting her at Bigfoot 200. Hillary, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. I was trying to recall when we actually first met, and I think... I think I, I happened to see you at check-in at Bigfoot, but I think I really met you when I was at the, like the lowest point of Bigfoot 200 and, and trying to find the next aid station and basically sulking and feeling bad for myself. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that moment. It was, it, yeah, it was one of my lowest points, but I think that's where we first like actually officially met. Yeah, I mean, you definitely would have met me at check-in because I was doing everyone's mug shots for the race. But uh, 
I, man, I'm trying to remember if I can recall that exact moment because I recall similar moments from Tahoe and from Moab. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> there's, a connection, there's a connection uh, here. <laughs> totally. Now, if I can find you at your lowest moment, that's usually the best photo. So <laughs> I'm pleased. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are great races, though. I mean, I knew a little bit about you, but I think we really got to know each other hiking. Like you were going to a point for a photo and I was like 120 plus miles deep into Tahoe 200 and we got to just chat and like actually, you know, I was too tired to hold back. It was probably a really honest conversation we should have recorded, but um, (laughs) yeah, let's, so this isn't about the triple crown. You know, this is about you. I want to share as much as I can about your story Take us back. I don't want to go through and like, you know, do a whole chronology here, but have you been a runner your whole life or have you been, you know, part part of team sports growing up? And let's hear kind of like where you where you grew up and and some of the base level stuff. Yeah, um, I have a kind of funny accidental fall into ultra running, I guess. Um, I grew up on a farm, so was homeschooled for most of my younger years. Um, graduated from a high school just because I wanted to actually have a piece of paper that said I could go to university. But I would never got into team sports because, I mean, I never had access to them. And it was kind of unusual because growing up on this farm, I was super outdoorsy. And it was like we had nine kids living on a farm. Um, I was total tomboy, kind of anything you can do, I can do better. But never really... a sporty person just an outdoorsy person I guess and then yeah I went to university and that was the first time I started running and that was mostly just for fitness Uh, they had a gym in the building and I would go down there at like 11 o'clock at night when my brain hurt and I couldn't look at a textbook for another minute and just like go run for an hour and I was like oh that's actually a really nice way to just unwind and that kind of it became a really nice routine and I did that through the first year and a bit of university and then around that time, um, I had a series of health issues. I ended up getting really sick um, with what was later diagnosed as celiac disease. But at the time, um, I just started losing a bunch of weight, got really sick. Doctors couldn't figure out what was going on because I had so many symptoms for a bunch of different things. Um, ended up in the hospital for like four months and then in and out of the hospital for a couple more months. Um, at my lowest weight, I was, it was, it was a really, like, I look back on it now and I'm just like, holy shit. That's a long time in the hospital. Oh my god! It was a long time in the hospital. Yeah. I was like full on resident. Um, and like, yeah, it was crazy. Like I weighed under 90 pounds. I was super sick. At one point the doctor told my parents that he didn't know if I was going to make it. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, I was 19 years old and I look back on that now and I just think, that had this huge effect on my life. Like, how could it not, you know? Because one minute I was this 18-year-old in university like everyone else and feeling invincible. And then the next minute I had my professor visiting me in the hospital with a book signed by all my classmates. And it was just like, like, what did my life just become, you know? Um, yeah, it was, it was a really dark but powerful time of my life, I guess. What was the Um, catalyst? Like, was it just 
slow, like withering away to the point that you eventually were in the hospital or was, was there like yeah. some main catalyst that triggered this reaction in your body? It was a good question. Um, I was in a bad car accident um, about four months before I really, like at kind of, if you look at it now, the beginning of when I started getting sick. Um, and doctors think that was probably the stressor that triggered a lot of these things to really go crazy. Um, and I look back at my childhood and I had a series of unexplained sicknesses and was constantly complaining of stomach aches and things that probably should have triggered more investigation when I was younger. But at the time, it was like people didn't really look at food the same way. They didn't really, I don't know, there wasn't as much awareness. Um, and then I should also mention that my sister has really bad Crohn's disease and that runs in my family. So there's there was definitely like a lot of stuff around that that probably should have been investigated and wasn't sooner. And then, yeah, by the time they actually started getting to the bottom of it, I was just so sick that I ended up in the hospital purely because I couldn't keep weight on, couldn't keep food in. And I was on a feeding tube for a month. So they actually put me on like total bowel rest and I wasn't allowed to eat anything. And that sucked. <laughs> you like never know that you're going to be excited for hospital jello until you're not allowed to have it. Um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, that was, that was a crazy period of life for me in my late teens. I mean, do you have any like vivid memories when you were in the hospital that long? I mean, like, were you um, just dying to get outside? Um, I yeah, mean, were I would, you literally I would inside? Were you able to go outside at all over those four months? I would do laps of the hospital hallways, like in my gown with my IV stand, just like. And there was an old hospital where, like, there was sets of staircases every, like, at the end of every hallway. So you'd have to pick up the IV stand and go up. And so I would, I would kind of do laps. And then as I got better, I would go out on day passes and my parents would come pick me up and we'd just go sit in a coffee shop down the street. Like I'd still have my hospital wristbands on and my like pick line in my arm. Cause when you're in the hospital for long periods of time, they put you on this like eternal IV line. Uh, but I would get outside and I actually have this one really vivid memory, which was one of the reasons that I started running when I finally started getting better. And Vancouver has a big 10 K called the sun run. It's one of the biggest ones in North America, like 50,000 people do it every year. And I remember being in the hospital while that was happening and I could hear the crowds of people going by and I could just like hear this energy because we were only a couple blocks from where the race route went. And I just remember thinking that if I could get to a place where I could do that, that I'd be pretty stoked. Like that would be a huge milestone for me as far as moving forward with my life. So, so yeah, I guess that memory really stood out to me, especially later as I, as I started kind of getting better, getting back on my feet, it was just like, well, this is a marker of progress that I can use. That's amazing. And so how, how, yeah. how did progress go for you over the next few years? Um, yeah, so my, I guess the first few years of my 20s were spent just rebuilding my body. Like I had crazy muscle atrophy. And when I started getting better, my metabolism just went nuts. So I went from weighing under 90 pounds to almost doubling my weight in the course of like a year and a half. So it was a very short amount of time to just like double your weight. Um, 
And that was really hard because I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I would get all sorts of judgmental comments from strangers. Um, you know, I was constantly having to buy new clothes because I didn't fit them. But I, I really didn't want to end up with an eating disorder or something. So I decided that the alternative was just to exercise. And I started by hiking. And I would, uh, yeah, I would go up the gross grind, which is kind of Vancouver's Stairmaster. <laughs> <laughs> and I would do that a couple days a week, super slowly. And it's, it just seemed like a very friendly way to just ease into the outdoors again. And I was just craving being outside. So it kind of filled that part of me. And then I did run the sun run, the 10K, um, about a year and a half after I was out of the hospital, maybe two years. And that was kind of a really cool moment. Like, I just remember running it. I didn't care how fast I was going. I had to walk a bunch. And, but I was just surrounded by all these people celebrating, like, life and health. And I had this totally new perspective on my body. And it felt like I had a second chance, which I think when you're in your early 20s isn't something that you really, a lot of people have experienced. And for me, I just wanted to, like, shout it from the rooftops, you know, like, yeah. life is great. <laughs> I've been there. Late 20s, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so was it like an outer body experience running that race and finishing, like being that close to where oh, you yeah. were confined for f four months? Like, Yeah, I, I totally, by that point, I think I was, I was in a better place. And so I was able to just like see it as a celebration. But I do remember like looking up at the hospital buildings as we went by and just being like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it was it was definitely a cool moment. It wasn't this like defining moment with slow motion music or anything like that. It was just like yeah. it was the marker that I wanted to be of like my life is in a, a place now where I have control of it again and I'm heading in a direction and I'm not going to stop anytime soon, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And man, I I can't tell you like hearing your weight fluctuations and stuff. I mean, I was personally through my own head thinking about the genes that I used to keep because I was never, sh <laughs> I was never sure. Like, you know, yeah. I, I dropped 50 pounds in probably two months. And so those size 36s, I might've even had 38s and they yeah. stayed in the closet. Cause I just wasn't confident. Like I wasn't sure if I'd just go right back. Like it was, right. it's almost a security blanket. Yeah. Yeah. It was therapeutic throwing those away. Um, eventually yeah. throwing him away, but I distinctly remember picking up my son, Ben, and fitting him in my jeans with me. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, how, how have you handled, it's been quite a few years, obviously, but I mean, how has the, the weight fluctuation thing been going for you? Is it like just an ongoing battle? Because... No, no. For me, I mean, I'm. I feel very lucky because trail running, like finding that sport, which is kind of what my hiking evolved to, um, it, it gave me that balance where I just stopped thinking about my body, and it took like maybe five years before my body settled into a weight that I think it was supposed to be at. You know, like that natural weight where you're not trying too hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then my body's just kind of stayed there. And honestly, like, I don't own a scale anymore. I weigh myself maybe once a year, maybe. And I just go by how I feel. But 
usually I'm within like two pounds of where I was last year. That's so great. yeah. And I, I really think that that's just because I don't put too much focus on it. But if I was to start being like, Oh, I want to lose five pounds. Like all of a sudden it would be this like Mount Everest to climb, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, it's just like my balance is just from not focusing on it. And that's how I've managed to stay sane and, and to have a good relationship with my body and with food. I want to hear about your journey onto the trails. I mean, it sounds like you mm-hmm. you got onto the trails, you know, after this prolonged period of, you know, not being able to even go outside, really. Um, how's that evolved? Like, how how was kind of your first few trail races? And for the listeners' background, Hillary became a pretty darn good trail runner. It, I just want to hear how that evolved and then where you are now. Yeah. Um, so I, I ran my first trail race, um, probably 2012, I'm going to say. And it was actually, um, a race that the Grouse Grind puts on where you would run from sea level up to the top of Grouse Mountain in Vancouver. So to me, that was like a safe fit. I was like, okay, well I do the Grouse Grind all the time as a hike. Can't be that much harder to run all the way up, you know? And so that was, that was my first race. I think it was only like 15, 20 kilometers long, but um, I really enjoyed it. And during the race, I met a couple people as I was running. There was like this girl in a neon shirt and I just followed neon shirt all the way up the mountain. And then we ended up chatting afterwards and she ended up including me in some runs that she was doing. And she was more of a trail runner. And that was kind of my gateway into this whole new world of trail running. And honestly, it was, I think the community that drew me in more than anything. Like I was kind of lonely at that point because I I didn't keep in touch with a lot of the people I'd met in university and hadn't made a lot of friends in high school because I'd been homeschooled. So I think I was just looking for people to connect with and to have people to do stuff with. And it was like, oh, these people are also interested in being outside. They're just running, not hiking. So, okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and that was that was kind of revolutionary to me and really the catalyst for me wanting to get into trail running. How, I and mean, then, how did it make you feel? Cause I know for me, I was like, these are my people. Like I, I felt yeah. like a sense of relief um, because I thought I was the only one running uh, crazy amounts of running and that passionate. And then once you surround yourself with like-minded folks, like for me, it was, I mean, I guess revolutionary is kind of a good word, but how did it make you feel? I think I just felt like I belonged somewhere, you know, like we're all really looking for that. And trail running is a very inclusive community. And I think that's what appeals to so many people is just that feeling of acceptance. And you can have totally different backgrounds, but you have this common denominator with trail running. And it just clicked for me. It was like, yes, like this is what I want. And these are people that will do it with me. And there's a camaraderie that comes out of that. And yeah, I, I, I just think that kind of ushered in one of the happiest periods of my life, honestly, like it, it really was what I was searching for. And it was kind of like the clincher of me putting all of the sickness and the stress of the five years before that behind me and just moving forward into something that made me really genuinely happy and gave me a purpose. And so did you follow Neon Shirt Girl into races or, or 
Honda Ultrasign? Yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, we became friends and um, I started showing up at these 50K races to crew people as they were doing them. And that was kind of my first moment where I was like, whoa, people run really far. And uh, <laughs> that, that was like a, a crazy thought. And then uh, there's a race at the end of August in 2013 called Squamish 50, one of Gary Robbins' races. Just and that was one. back in the day when, yeah, just casual. Yeah. Uh, it was back in the day when you didn't actually need uh, a lottery or like there was no wait list for it or anything. I don't think there is now, but like it sells out in two minutes, you know? I'm so just quit, quit, back then, quit bragging about that. We're going to lose listeners here. <laughs> it's such a you cool should do race. It. It's a great race. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, so I was able to sign up two weeks before the race, long story short. <laughs> and I just decided I was going to run an ultra because that was just like, you know, at that point, I think my brain was just in like go big or go home mode. Um, so they had a 23 K version, but I was like, well, like why would I do that when I can do the 50 K version? So, uh, it was like a disaster of a race is looking back on it. Now it's kind of funny. Like the night before the race, I had some plantar fasciitis. So I was like, Oh, I should get some insoles from the drugstore. <laughs> I should get these Dr. Scholl's, but I should also get the leather ones because then I can use them for my regular shoes. <laughs> You were, so jello, leather you were gelling during your first ultra. Oh. Yeah, leather dress sole in sh- insoles into my runners um, for my first ultra, which caused horrific blisters about 10 <laughs> kilometers into the race. And then I was like, I'm not going to stop to take care of these. I told myself I wouldn't stop for anything. And so I kept hobbling along as the blisters got worse. <laughs> By the time I got to like the halfway mark, I could barely like weight bear my feet. And I was like, must not stop for anything. Oh my God. So, so then of course the second half of the race went about as well as you would imagine. it would. <laughs> and I like alternated crawling and crying. I didn't know what gels were. So I was like, I don't know. Do people eat during these things? Like, I don't know. So I, I don't think I ate or drank or like did I just like crawled through this race but I had stubbornness on my side like I was just really determined that even if it killed me I was going to finish this race um and I did finish took me almost nine hours to run 50k uh crawled across the finish line and just like collapsed right there but it was like I remember just lying on the grass thinking wow that was really interesting I'd like to do that again you know and you just like that part of your brain you didn't know was there until you've done something stupid like that it was like oh no you you made it you you're alive you know you can do that again and it's just like (laughs) yeah i know totally (laughs) uh and then a week later you you don't remember any of it that's the best part is uh we forget so so well that then uh then you look Except back on how well that race went and you're signing up for another one yeah kind of <laughs> um and it's funny because uh i did sign up for i think i ran two other 50ks between august and december that year <laughs> just because mm-hmm. um and i i kind of i i had this like need to do it better you know and like fix the mistakes i'd made from the first one so of course, I just like launched myself into the ultras, with, you know, no extra training or anything. Just like if I do enough of them, I'll get better at it. And uh, 
And then I ended up uh, seeing a Facebook announcement from Gary Robbins. I think it was like January or February 2014. And he had just started accepting coaching clients. And so I contacted him and I was like, I'll be your guinea pig. (laughs) And I was one of his first uh, coaching clients when he first started, which was kind of the groundbreaking moment as far as changing my whole approach to ultras and taking me from someone that was just like thrashing around with sheer stubbornness and then making me much smarter about the way I did them. (laughs) So thank God for Gary, because I probably was going to end up on a slippery road where I wouldn't have been able to like walk inside of a year because of all the damage (laughs) I'd done. (laughs) Yeah. And so, I mean, what, what keeps drawing you back to these races and what's drawing you to wanting to improve? Um, I mean, I think it's just that perpetual desire to learn more about ourselves. Like that was certainly what appealed to me about ultras was that it accessed somewhere that I didn't know existed. And I think all of the kind of tough times that I've had earlier in life, it made me really suited to the stubborn aspect of it, of just like digging in and not caring about the pain. But yeah, there's like a fascination with figuring out exactly where the limits were, you know, and I just, I just wanted to find that limit. Didn't necessarily know what that would feel like, but it was just like this insatiable desire. So I just kept signing up for these races and being like, well, maybe this one will be long enough. Maybe this one. Um, And then along the way, I think as I became more involved in the community and I started actually training properly, like then it became something more sustainable. (laughs) Were you like, was the end result of any of these races satisfaction or were you still searching And was there any kind of negative fallout of signing up for all these races? Um, I mean, I think I got pretty lucky with that because I started working with Gary. And I mean, even so, I think I ran about 10, 50 Ks in my first year of running ultras. So it was quite a bit. But that, I think working with Gary really helped me to slow down the pace and start to to focus more on the quality of the races and not the quantity of them. And yeah, that it it really did help give me a a check and balance. And I think that's what coaches often provide is just that perspective of like, you know, this is great, but too much of a great thing is not great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think I was able to avoid that burnout stage that would have inevitably followed and, and just start to slow down. And I started, I ran my first 50 miler. I think I did that in 2015, 14. I don't know. It was the North Face 50 miler. And that was my first foray into pushing the distances. And then everything from there just became about like, well, what are my goals? What do I want out of this? And that kind of led over the next like couple of years. And I had my first big major breakthrough, I guess, at Fat Dog 70 Miler. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, yeah, it was an interesting race for me because uh, I didn't actually publicize this, but a month before the race, I was in a bad car accident again. Uh, I was rear-ended coming off the highway by a Dodge Ram pickup truck going at full speed, and he crunched my little Toyota Yaris. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I ended up in an ambulance in a neck brace on the way to the hospital with like potential spinal injuries 
And I kept telling the paramedic, this is really inconvenient. I have a race in four weeks that I've been training my butt off for. <laughs> like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> and I mean, luckily, I didn't have any fractures or anything. I just had really bad whiplash. And so the month before I ran this big race, which was like the pinnacle of my training for the year that Gary and I had been working on, um, I wasn't allowed to run at all. And I couldn't even move my neck. And I would just like walk around like a robot um, so I had a very long taper for that race, can, but can you take me back to the hospital for the second time? Yeah. I mean, did you have any kind of moment there where you're like, PTSD. uh, back here again? Like, you know, thought you, yeah. you thought you had escaped it and then you find yourself back there or was it just a, a, such a short stint that it, you know, it didn't really register that way. I think. I think there was like a moment of fear where I was just like, I've come so far. I don't want to go back here. But then I also really, I felt so different in my body then. I think I had a confidence in myself that I could overcome it. And I just, in my head, I was like, there's nothing broken. There's nothing broken. And I kept telling the x-ray technician that as he wheeled me in. And he's like, "Mm -hmm. it's often the people that look fine that aren't fine. (laughs) And I'm like, there's nothing broken. So I think I just, I was in a really positive place and ultra running had made me feel just very strong and capable in my own body so that was a good thing and I think that really helped my recovery because I just like I got out of the hospital I was only in there for six hours while they did all these tests and then it was like well okay if I can't run for the next four weeks I'm just gonna walk a lot you know and just I I was immediately like well what can I do to get back and I didn't want to use it as an excuse, which is why I didn't tell anyone. I was just like, this is not going to derail me. I've come too far for that. So that was kind of a cool moment of just seeing how much I was capable of taking on and handling. Whereas, obviously, if that had happened to me years earlier, and I hadn't kind of developed this strength and confidence in myself, I think it probably would have really set me back and, and been this thing where I was like, oh, you know, kind of crumpled into the pain instead of facing it and being like, no. (laughs) So how'd that start line feel? I mean, I mean, eventually you make the start line, right? Yeah, no, made the start line, made the finish line too. Spoiler. Um, Yeah, it was, it was a crazy race that year. They had, it was called the year of the storm. And I was camping the night before the race uh, near the start line. And I just remember all night having to get up and push the water off the tent. And then my air mattress started floating because the water went inside the tent. (laughs) And then it started snowing at the start line in August. And I was like, oh, man, today is not, not starting off as a good day. But um, it, was, it was an example of, I think, how, where our brains are at and how, how we approach races makes such a different with the, difference with the outcome. Because for that race, I really had no expectations. Like, I think if I hadn't had that car accident, I would have lined up being like, I have trained for this I'm going to do well like and and being really competitive from the start but instead I was just like hey I'm here yay and I felt just very joyful that I got to run at all and every aid station was like check you know one more little um, affirmation so yeah it ended up being a crazy race um, and I actually ended up winning and I didn't know that I'd won until about half an hour after the race ended because <laughs> I was so focused on my little like bubble and like how good I felt and how happy the world was that I hadn't even realized that I'd passed the first place women um, in the dark in the last 20 miles. 
and uh, so that that was pretty funny. I wish I'd had a candid camera of my face when the race director told me that I was uh, that I'd won the race. Uh, that was that was a very still maybe one of my favorite moments of my my own ultra running journey was that moment because it just felt like such a gift like just to finish and I didn't even care really about the results and that made it even more special yeah that's interesting and so how I mean how did you go about having won a race like where you were probably feeling a lot more confident about your running I mean was the injury totally healed and you were ready to go or I mean how'd the next year to go I mean in your in your trail so adventures <laughs> well the prize for winning the 70 mile was an entry to the 120 mile race <laughs> which i was like i don't know if that's a positive thing or a negative thing <laughs> um but i didn't have a lot of money so i was like hey free race entry is a free race entry guess i'm doing the 120 mile <laughs> and so that was my focus but uh, because of my car accident, I had a bunch of physical rehab sessions that the insurer pay- paid for. So I started working with personal trainer, which I'd never done before, and like literally knew nothing about my body or strength training or anything. So it actually was a really cool year because I had the opportunity to build a lot of strength that I'd never had. I built a lot of upper body strength, which I really think is key for running. Side note, like as you get tired, if you can keep your upper body strong you're going to keep your diaphragm open which totally makes sense but it's something that we neglect as runners is that whole holistic view at our our running selves and so it it became this kind of unexpected bonus where I had access to a trainer that I never would have been able to afford and learned all this stuff about my body my body mechanics uh, strengthen my glutes all these things as runners that we know we're supposed to do but we don't necessarily do and uh so yeah I, I I feel like the car accident ended up becoming this really positive thing for my ultra running, ironically. Interesting. And hmm. so I went back next year and did the 120 mile. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was for me. And I've, I've continued strength training ever since. And that's a big part of my routine. And I now devote a couple days a week totally to strength training and lower impact stuff. So, um, I think it made me a smarter runner because of that. And I gotta, I gotta ask, I mean, how'd the, <laughs> 120 go went well um i ended up placing uh i think i was third in that one so yeah and that it was i mean that was my first hundred miler so i added an extra 20 miles on for fun (laughs) (laughs) they don't charge any more for the the longer ones either it's great yeah right yeah i mean you really get banged for buck at the aid stations And that was a cool race. And that was one of the first times my parents have ever come to see me run. And they met me at an aid station in the middle of nowhere on the morning of the second day with scrambled eggs and bacon and a toothbrush. And I remember my mom looking at me as I was eating and ready to like head out again. And she's like, wait, so now we're going to go home and have lunch and come back and see you again in 10 hours and you'll still have been running. (laughs) And she just kind of looked at me and I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that's about right. We'll see you later. <laughs> I wonder what that uh, conversation in the car was like. For oh, my God. They were just like, what? <laughs> oh, it was really funny. And so they, they came to the finish line and I'd given them like an estimated time that I'd be in, like best case scenario and worst case scenario. And I ended up being like an hour ahead of my best case scenario. So as I was coming down to the 
end of the race in my head, I was like, oh my God, I hope they make it. Like I didn't tell them to be here for another hour. And apparently my mother, um, she says it's because only a mother would know her daughter's running stride. <laughs> apparently she's, she spotted me from across the lake, which is like three miles from the finish. And, and was like, that's her. And everyone else was like, no, that's not her. That's her. So anyways, it was pretty funny when I came in and she was very, very pleased with herself. <laughs> Uh, but that was that was really cool that's a um, maternal well, instinct that i have never heard of before but i, I know right <laughs> and considering she'd like never watched me run before i was like i think that was fluke but you know that's just me <laughs> and then i proceeded to like puke in a bucket beside them for the next few hours so i don't think they ever wanted to come back to one of my races after that <laughs> yeah it was that was a cool moment because that was I mean, 100 miles is crazy far. 120 miles feels even harder and farther than that. But it was just like this moment where I felt like I'd reached the pinnacle of, you know, ultra running, especially at the time, because 200 milers were just starting to come onto the scene and 100 milers were like, that's it. So for me, it just felt like maybe I hadn't run as far as I could go, but I felt pretty satisfied with that. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I can slow down now. <laughs> so, I mean, I got I got to keep going back. Like, are there negative fallouts at all from, you know, hitting this level of distance yeah. performance? Like, because you're pushing the boundaries on distance, but then you're also, you know, on the podium here. Like, are there, yeah. like, are you battling anything negative or is this just, it keeps getting better? It's a good question. Um, to be honest, up until that point, I don't think I was. I think I I just kind of took that first win in stride and still felt like I had a lot more to, to do. And after I podiumed on the 120 mile, I think that's when I really started to struggle with my place in the running world. Because you have this taste of, okay, well, people know, you know, that I've done well at these races and I would have people come up to me and be like, wow, like congrats on that race or something. And there's that heady feeling of like, wow, yeah, like I am, I am good at this. And I, I think that that fall after I did well at the 120 miler, I really sunk into almost a depression and it was like the, the counterpart to the high, you know, like you have this crazy moment where you've seen success beyond what you could have dreamed of. And then it's like that feeling of what now? And that really sunk in for me after Fat Dog 120 miler because it was like, well, I've done the 100 mile check. I've done the 120 mile check. Done well at it check. It just felt like I didn't have anything else to, to look forward to. Or uh, yeah, I, I definitely felt like a balloon that had been deflated, you know? And I took a few months off where I didn't run at all. And I just really struggled to regain my my joy and my love of running it was like without realizing it i'd been very goal oriented with everything it was constantly like this race this race check these off the list you know increase the distance um and there was always like a plan and then all of a sudden there was no plan anymore and it was just me and running and somehow this weird pressure that i put on myself from other people that wasn't really there but i felt like i had to keep up a cer certain standard you know, like I couldn't just go out for a run. I had to go out for a run and do well at it. And 
and that was really hard for me because it just felt like a pressure that I I didn't want, but I kept I kept putting on myself. So it's yeah, interesting. I, I, the the evolution of your running was it started off as pure joy, mm-hmm. and then it seems like as you became an elite, essentially. I don't know. It's it became a burden on you to the point of I don't know, almost the opposite of your original, you know, getting out of the hospital and and doing those first few races with the leather insoles. <laughs> um Yeah. I, mean, I think how, it was. How how have you pulled pulled through, you know, some of the darker moments and found like, you know, found enjoyment on the trails again? I think it was a, I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think I, mean, I took some time off from running and really reevaluated why I was out there. Um, I stopped working with a coach for a while just to focus on, on me and take any pressure off of myself to perform at a certain level. And I actually really well I started running with a few people they were kind of mutual friends of mine and they were older runners and one of them Kevin Titus is like the godfather of running up in uh, Whistler and he's built a lot of the trail systems in BC and I just really respected him as a runner and he's um, actually a retired PE teacher now and he would kick my butt every single time we went out just destroy me and it was so good for me just to be around someone like he holds records on some of the ultras, like the Nienacker, which is one of um, Canada's, I guess, most famous ultras. Um, he held the record on that for a number of years and is a very accomplished runner, but he's also a very low key runner. Like he's not on social media. He doesn't give a shit about any of that stuff, but he will beat anyone that tries to <laughs> come up against him. And, and I really think spending time with him and people with that mindset helped me to get over myself as it were, you know, like just to be around people that had made this part of their lives. And he'd been running for probably 40 years, but yet he wasn't doing it for anyone else. And he didn't race. He was just a badass in the mountains and very accomplished at a whole bunch of different sports. And I think it just like, it helped me to step back and be like, that's what I want. Ultimately, like I don't, want to be someone that ties my identity to race results. I don't want to be someone that has these crazy highs and lows depending on how I do or, you know, if I didn't accomplish my goal. It just seemed like I was setting myself up for abject failure if I made that the purpose of my running. And like you said, when when I started running, that wasn't the point at all. So it was like I kind of let the success get to me a little bit and I'd let it change my relationship with running. And so I, I really stepped back and I just asked myself why I was doing this. Um, I stopped running with a watch and just, just tried to not care about the time, just tried to be out in the mountains and find that joy again. And that, that really was a turning point for me as far as being able to go, no, like I, I don't want to be someone that's tied to these races. And if that's how I react to racing, then maybe I shouldn't be racing, you know, until I can kind of, get more balance with it. I mean, and so do you start traveling? I mean, I I think I remember you went, you've done some crazy amounts of traveling. 
I mean, was this kind of coinciding <laughs> at the same time? Um, you know, as you yeah. rediscover yeah. your why you're on the trails? Totally. Um, I mean, I think as I stopped running quite as much, I was also back in school because I um, kind of, as a side note, um, through ultra running, I had started teaching myself how to use um, a DSLR and started running with a camera for a lot of my runs just because I had recognized that there wasn't a lot of female sports photographers. And I saw this kind of really interesting place where I could use my love of running and my ability to go really far and capture kind of unique content that a lot of people couldn't get. So anyways, through all of that process, I had quit my corporate job and I'd gone back to school for a year to do some graphic design just to kind of create a more well-rounded uh, career. So I, I really just switched focuses and, and, and started working on being better in the mountains, being a better mountaineer, being a better rock climber, because those were also things that I really enjoyed, and being a more well-rounded athlete, which in general is good, because then if you do get injured or something, you have other things to fall back on, and you're not just tied to running. But, uh, but yeah, so through that process, I had started photographing races, being involved with the ultra running community, kind of on another side of it. Mm -hmm. And that had led to a lot of different travel opportunities. I had a fun trip um, to the Lake District in the UK. And I was in school at the time. And I was like, there's no way I can take off. This is a crazy intensive program. And then it happened that it fell on a long weekend. And I was like, well, if I leave right after classes on the Friday, I can maybe make it back from Europe to North America <laughs> by Monday. <laughs> um, so I did. Perfect logic. So I went to Europe on, yeah, yeah I, I went to Europe for a weekend. <laughs> My theory was that I wouldn't even have time to get jet lagged. So, <laughs> And you don't even need to sleep. So... Right? It was perfect. I was just like the energizer bunny. I was like living on Red Bull all weekend. <laughs> um, but no, it was a really cool trip. And that was with Innovate. And we did a weekend of like trail running workshops. Um, they call it fell running there, which essentially means just like picking a line up the hills as far as you can go. And because there's no trees there, it's like you, it's really easy to just navigate yourself around. And then throwing yourself down the mountain at maximum speed with like no regard for your personal safety. <laughs> like they're just insane descendants. I've never seen anyone that fast. So we did this really fun workshop on downhill running where I was just like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is where I die <laughs> the whole time. Um, and then we did a fell running race the next day, which was really fun. And like all fell running races basically start and end at the pub and you just like run up the mountain as hard as you can and then run back down as hard as you can. And, uh, and that was really fun. It was just good for me to go out and do a race that wasn't particularly long. Like I think it was 10 miles long, just giver in a place where nobody knew me. Um, there's like nothing to gain or lose. And I actually had this like hilarious moment on the way down where I just decided I was going to take the brakes off and be a fell runner. <laughs> And, um, I hit a rock and I just, I, I knew that I wasn't going to catch the fall, you know, and you have that feeling of like the arms come out and you're just going down. Yeah. yeah and I was like, yeah. Oh fuck. And I was hurtling down the side of this mountain. And so I managed to kind of steer my body so I wasn't going to like hit anything too sharp and went down hard, literally bounced. Like, I think I got two feet of air off the ground. And nice. then I just kind of like, oh yeah, 
right? <laughs> just like picked myself up again. And there was this like shepherd in the field just staring at me. And he's like, are you okay, last? And I was like, yeah, 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 we're good. And I just like kept running. I like, like my knee was bleeding, but I didn't even feel it. Um, and then it turns out afterwards that I had decided to faceplant right in front of the race photographer. <laughs> and he caught the thing on camera in slow motion. <laughs> um, so later that year, um, someone over there sent me a photo of the cell running magazine, which goes out every month. And I made the centerfold of the yearly issue with, with my Superman pose. The one where I was like, like literally Superman two feet off the ground. I, I think, um, I think you just, uh, found the photo that I need to share this episode with, by no. the way. God, um, it is one of my proudest moments to be fair. Like, that was the definition of fell running right there. Like I totally embraced it. Literally this. fell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you got back to not putting, not leveling expectations on yourself, essentially. Like, I don't know how you managed yeah, to do it, but you got back to that good spot where... I mean, you're you're having fun, but you also have no expectations on yourself. Yeah, I think it just it took a long break from running. Um, I actually didn't race at all for two years, which was uh, not intentional. <laughs> I'd signed up to do Cascade Press 100 Miler in 2017, and I broke my big toe four weeks before the race, uh, which was good. unfortunate. Perfect timing. <laughs> I'm, really, yeah. I'm really good at oh. it. Yeah. Um, so I had to pull out of the race because it turns out that a broken big toe is actually fairly significant when it affects your whole foot. <laughs> I was like, can you just cut it off? Like, I don't really need it, right? Um, <laughs> anyways, so uh, instead of doing the 100-mile race that year, I went to Nepal. And I spent a few months in Nepal hiking and taking photos and climbing and being on this amazing trip. And... And so it just kind of cemented in my mind that like, I don't need racing to be happy in the mountains. And I didn't sign up for anything until the following year. I went back and raced Cascade Crest 100 in 2018. But in that time period of the two year break, it was just like, no, this is really good. Like, this is where I want to be. And I, I think that's what helped me just kind of put the ego behind me and, and run happy again and just give less shits you know so that's that is amazing i mean the irony like you break your toe have yeah you put in all this training i'm sure it was hugely devastating but you likely in nepal had a more profound moment than you would have ever you know during that race is that oh, fair? is that fair yeah that trip was very impactful like i just finished school at that point and I got invited to be on this trip, and it was uh, with four guys that I didn't really know. One of them I'd met in Kenya on a trip the year before, and then everyone else was a total stranger. So it was just like me and these guys in the mountains climbing 6,000-meter peaks together, which is pretty high. That's like just under 20,000 feet, which I'd never been at altitude before. I'd never been to Asia before. It was just a whole bunch of firsts for me. And I didn't run a step the whole trip. I just hiked, and I was so happy and just totally had found a different sort of joy in the mountains. So I, I, I'm very grateful for that broken big toe because I was able to totally just shift away from running 
but still find ways to be in the mountains and to move and to feel good and to recognize that like running didn't have to be the only way that I traveled in the mountains. And I could get those feelings from, from other sides of being outside. What, what are those feelings like in, what is it about being in the mountains on the trails? I think there's just a simplicity about it. You know, when you're in the middle of a 200 mile race or a 10 mile run for that matter, but when you can get to that place where your mind stops chattering at you or you stop being absorbed with like the little problems of the day and you can just kind of be focused on where you are. I mean, for me, often it's when I have to pay attention since apparently I'm a klutz and I need to <laughs> really pay attention. There's a theme of lots of falls in my ultra running So it's, it's living in the present? Is that yeah. fair? Totally. I think that's what it is. I think that's what we love about being in the mountains. And it's something you get in trail running that you don't get in road running is this ability to, like, you have to focus on what you're doing. You can't just throw in a podcast or a song and go grind out some miles. Um, you know, like most of us don't listen to music on the trails, or if you do, it's one ear only because you're worried about lions and tigers and bears, you know? <laughs> so you're, you, you have to be present and you have to be paying attention to what you're doing. And that just kind of strips away everything else. And that's where you get that, that piece. So I, I, I think that's what, that's what I continue to, to look for in the mountains. And whatever so, pace. I mean, I'll, I'll still try to get some more insights out in Nepal. Like, like mm. what, as I stutter, um, what, what other like insights did you take away from that trip? It sounds incredible. I was mm-hmm. thinking about trying to make it out there at some point. Yeah, I know. I'll have to make that happen. Yeah, I I mean, I actually went back the following year because I'd just fallen so in love with the the whole country. And it impacted me in, in huge ways, just being in a place that was so grand, where people were a lot happier than we are, you know, in our consumerist society. I just, I really connected to to kind of stripping away a lot of the, the excess parts of our lives and just leading a simpler, a simpler life. So it drew me back there for sure. Uh, the second time I went back, I went up to an area called the Upper Mustang, which is close to Tibet. And that was an interesting kind of different experience because the first trip was up in the Everest region. It was very mountainous. It was very much what you would expect from Nepal. And the second trip, we went up and over uh, through the Annapurna area and over Thurangla Pass. But then we were into the high desert, which is not really an area that I've spent a lot of time in. And that allowed me to connect more to the people and the history of where I was. And a lot of the areas that we were in, we were like a week away from a road in areas that tourists don't really go. And staying in people's houses, you know, they didn't even have tea houses. It was just you were literally in someone's house and sitting in their kitchen while they cooked for you. And and that was a different side of traveling, I think, which I really um, needed to see, that it doesn't always have to be these big, grandiose mountains. It can be these smaller moments of just connecting with people that lead totally different lives, but you still have things in common. Um so yeah, it's Nepal is somewhere that has had a big impact on my life, my career. Just yeah, it's 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 been a really special place for me. I keep going back. That's that's amazing. Um, and so, what made you decide to kind of go for it and make the giant kind of career change and you know 
try to combine <laughs> try to combine all these passions into one hmm. lifestyle um there's a few things i think it was um I mean, I'd, I'd wanted to make a change from my corporate job for a few years. I worked for the government for almost seven years. Um, it was just the job I fell into after I got sick to pay off my student loans. And then I never really left. I just kind of moved up through the ranks. But I, I knew it wasn't really fulfilling me. It was just treading water. And I think because of everything that I'd been through in my life, I really didn't want to just tread water. So I had this, you know, I, I really wanted to have more purpose and more fulfillment for my life. But kind of figuring out how was the bigger question and as I got into the photography and that started to grow I started to see that as an actual possible career and be like okay well clearly there's a market for this and I'm using up all my vacation time at work and shoehorning trips to Europe in on weekends <laughs> and and trying to kind of lead this lifestyle without fully committing to relying on it to pay my bills um but yeah, I, I think the year that I ended up quitting my job and going back to school, um, someone that was close to me ended up being um, diagnosed with cancer and um, they didn't, they passed away in a relatively short amount of time. And it really hit me just how short life is and how fragile life is and how you can go from thinking everything's fine one day to all of a sudden like, running out of time. And so, to be honest, that was really the big catalyst was just like, why am I sitting here thinking, oh, I should make this change one day. Uh, you know, I, I, I need to do it now. And so, so I did. I quit my job. And it's just like, well, if it doesn't work out, I suppose I can go work in a bar, you know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was just a moment where I was like, you know, I, I used to have this drive when I was first released from the hospital, all I wanted to do was just live as much as I could every day. And then it's amazing how that just gets dulled over the years as we get accustomed to a certain sort of lifestyle or comfort or security. And you just kind of fall into the same habits as everyone else where you're just kind of existing and days and time don't really mean that much. And then you get these reminders where it's like, actually, it's not infinite. <laughs> and if you want to do something, you should probably go do it. So to me, that was that was the moment. How I mean, was that scary for you? I mean, were you like, or, or I mean, for me, I think running's taught me to kind of lose the fear of failure. I mm -hmm. mean, <laughs> like, is that kind of along the same lines as your logic? Yeah, I mean, it was it was absolutely terrifying. Um, I don't think I've ever dealt with so much anxiety as I have since I quit my job and went back to school and started working for myself like it shocked me how much that's impacted me and how crippling that can be just because when you don't have the security blanket there's so much riding on you know all of your decisions and where you put your time and I, I wasn't expecting it like I'd never been someone that had dealt with a lot of anxiety and all of a sudden I was just like like waking up in the middle of the night with these like total panic attacks just because I was like, I don't know where my next bill is going to come from. I don't know how I'm, you know, like all these things going through my head and the uncertainty. And that's been a big thing I've had to work through through the last few years. Like I've spent a lot of time in therapy, just trying to come to terms with why I 
need the security and why I feel so like threatened when I don't have it and kind of figuring out how to just be more at peace with my life and, and not need to be in control over it all. But it's, it has not been an easy transition. <laughs> There's been a yeah. lot of times where I was like, I don't know, this is like, this is more than I thought was going to be. And, and it was, it was more about the mental side of it than it was ever about the, the jobs. Cause I've always made ends meet. I've always somehow figured it out, but that uncertainty is just a killer. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm sure you question, question yourself, uh, pretty deeply like on if there's any logic in in doing this like i know i question myself so much like writing mm-hmm. a book put putting through an order for thousands of copies of a book physical copies <laughs> and being like well uh here goes <laughs> I, I i literally am like am i insane like what if there's mm-hmm. only seven people that buy this book like this is absolutely crazy like i'm not a runner why am i even trying to do this that type of logic which is debilitating at times but you know we all have those moments i'm sure you're the same way um i think this year or 2019 you're probably the trail photographer of the year like (laughs) new new young gun fresh perspective female photographer out there on the trails um do you think photographers get enough credit for what they go through and we can use your small experience at tahoe as an example too um (laughs) i tried to wipe that one from my memory actually (laughs) oh we're gonna relive it it's in the tv show too i think (laughs) um yeah, I, I, it's it definitely been an interesting transition into race photography. Like, I mean, I definitely think this last year was a, a huge jump forward for me as far as photographing all sorts of races. Like I did, uh, started with the Coastal Challenge in Costa Rica, which was my second year doing it last year. And then went to uh, Canyons 100K, which was a golden ticket race. And then Broken Arrow and Western States and then the three 200s. And it definitely, it, it felt like an accidental year of races. Like that wasn't my plan to photograph all these races. The opportunities just came up. And I mean, I had the pleasure to work with Scott Rokas and Howie Stern on a lot of them. And that was really cool because up until this year, I felt like a lot of race photography is very much lone wolf you know, you're out there by yourself and there's not a lot of support or like you said, recognition for what the photographer is going through. And I really enjoyed this past year being part of a team where, you know, you had other people to rely on that had your back and understood what was going on and you could kind of spell each other off. So, so that was a really cool part of last year was it actually felt like I I was part of something bigger and we were able to support each other. The three of you, I have to say, are like, (laughs) at least in my head and I'm very biased, but, um, three of the best. And I sincerely mean that. Yeah. You guys not only put in crazy hours, um, during these races, but you capture it. Like you get those shots and, uh, it's, it's unbelievable what the three you guys are capable of or two guys. And, and now, uh, you know, rock star (laughs) female too. 
Um, <laughs> Got to represent the girls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there hasn't been much coverage on that fact that mm-hmm. I would say almost all, not all, but a lot of trail photography is done by men and you've broken through. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, 2020 we see articles in magazines and elsewhere you know, detailing your background, your story and what you're doing. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I, I do feel very strongly that I want to see more female photographers in this world. And I mean, over the last three years, which is really when I started my professional career as a photographer, I have yet to work with another female photographer on a project, which it, it really does speak to how few there are. Um, and I think a lot of it is, going back to the Tahoe debacle, which we'll get to, uh, it's just very physical. Like it's, it's a very demanding job. And I think that's what appealed to me is because I'm a strong athlete. I could actually keep up because I'm, you know, able to keep up with the guys while I'm running or doing these sports. So I was like, why can't I keep up when I've got a camera in my hand? It's only 30 pounds of extra gear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so that's been very satisfying for me as an athlete to take my skills and be like, okay, well, what happens when I add 30 pounds of gear? Can I still keep up? Can I still get into these places? Kind of the logistics of that make it a really interesting from a photographer slash athlete perspective. Like, you know, we're out there the same as you guys We're in the elements and often we're in one place for a lot longer. So you get cold, you get exposed to the wind and whatever else the weather's throwing at you and so you have to be able to keep up just from a like physical standpoint and then like you said still find the energy to be creative you know and that's that's a big challenge is in those moments and like I've had so many moments I think about like mornings in Nepal at 3 a.m going up to the top of a summit to get a shot and being so cold that I was like had tears running down my face and I was just hitting the shutter through my glove and shaking and I couldn't have like changed any settings if I wanted to. Cause I was just so fucking cold. <laughs> um, I or had, like, I had know, that be- moment it, at Tahoe where I took my glove off yeah. or I took it out of my coat and was like, I'm kind of risking losing my finger right now uh, to hit like record, I think on the GoPro or something. Like, have you had that totally. moment where you're like, oh. you're kind of risking Losing yeah. a finger or so many a times. limb. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and it's definitely, there's a balance where you do have to watch out for yourself safety wise, because no one's going to come and rescue you if something goes wrong. And like you guys wear the GPS trackers during those 200 mile races, but we don't, you know? Yeah. So no one exactly knows where I am in the that's middle of nowhere. If actually, there's no self coverage. I know, right? Valid concern <laughs> that I hadn't thought of, but um, yeah. Well, let's start with okay. So it's it's actually really weird how many days within like five miles of each other we were this or in 2019. Yeah. But Western I know, states. Were you stalking me or was I stalking you? Both. <laughs> yeah, just like the mountain lion probably has been stalking yeah. both of us. Um, oh God. <laughs> so Western states. If you watch the Matt Daniels film, I'm trying to remember what aid station it was, but there's a slow motion scene where Matt Daniels has a sponge like over his head that someone (laughs) does. And there's Hillary right there snapping photos like crazy. So we were, we're both at Western States, but then Bigfoot 
you know, I, I finally get to know you a little bit. And I would say you captured my favorite photo pretty much ever. Um, Sweet. Yeah, that night photo with the sky. And then mm. I think it's you looking up with your headlamp. Yeah. Yeah, that, self-portrait. That <laughs> was one of the most phenomenal photos I've ever seen. Thank you. How long did it take you to learn how to do night photography? Like how many different Uh elements went into that photo? Because that was truly a special photo. That was, yeah. And that, I, I agree. That's one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken, mostly because of what it represented. Um, That was the last day of Bigfoot and like day five. So we've all been out there, no one's sleeping and it rained like every day during that race. I don't know if you remember that. You probably thought it was nice and cool. But for us, we were just like, no. (laughs) Died of lightning strikes. So, yeah, I have a pretty good recall on (laughs) on some thunderstorms and lightning storms. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. I felt like a human tripod up there with my camera gear. (laughs) Just like, hey, lightning over here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, we were just done at the end of that race because, like, every single day, the views were obscured, like, you know, running around Mount St. Helens, you can't see a bloody thing because it's just pouring rain or it's all socked in. You'd never know there was these epic mountains there. And Scott and Howie and I, we always divide up the race and try to kind of spread out where we're going to be and which like epic viewpoints, depending on where the racers are. And all of us were just getting skunked. And it was just like, did you get anything? Nope. Did you see anything? Nope. Um, which is disappointing because you're in such a beautiful area. And I really think the Bigfoot 200 course is my favorite one of the three, just because it's the Cascade Mountains. Same here. Don't tell, an, yeah. don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. I know. Now it's out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really loved it. I thought the terrain was beautiful. Maybe it's because it speaks to my Pacific Northwest roots, but just like I, I absolutely was in love with it. And then it felt like there was all these missed opportunities where we didn't get to show it off. So, when I went up to that last summit, um, from the last day of the race and I was looking at the pack and everyone was so spread out. It was like, literally there was another 24 hours worth of runners that were still out there coming in. And side note, I'd never shot a race before where there was like a 24 hour gap between the first and last person. So logistically trying to manage like how long you want to sit out there for and how much of the pack you're going to get and, like how far ahead you go so that you catch the people that you didn't get at the last part, like those become really big challenges. So, um, yeah, I went up to the last summit and I was like, I'm just going to camp out here. I'm going to camp out here for as long as it takes to see everybody who's still on the race course. And that's what I did. I took a sleeping bag up there and I had a little sleeping mat. And that was my first time. that I saw it up there. I never brought, I didn't bring a tent. That was my first time sleeping outside in a bivy without a tent. And that was kind of a a milestone for me because there's a little bit of a protection with the tent. Like, okay, I'm up here, but I'm in my tent and no one can get me. There's a drop off up there where you were. (laughs) There was nowhere flat to put that sleeping pad. Let's put it that way. I was just like lying on an angle. (laughs) But um, yeah, so I stayed up there for, I think I was up there for 30 hours altogether and I saw you relatively early on before sunset on the first day. And then I tried to nap a little bit during the night, but didn't really. Because when I tried to sleep, someone thought that I was a runner, like on the trail. And they're like, hello, are you okay? 
woke me up and I was like, yeah, yeah, Sleeping we're fine. on the Thank job you. again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Slacking off. Um, so, so that night I was just kind of up and it was a full moon. So there wasn't actually a ton of stars out until about 4 a.m. And then the moon set and all of a sudden it was like, you could just see the Milky Way. You could see, like, it was incredible. And there was no runners. So that's the other struggle too, is you can have this beautiful moment with these beautiful lighting and then no runners come along for an hour or two and you're just like, no, I never thought about that. Yeah. So it, it can be a real challenge. You can be in the most beautiful sunset location. Everything's lined up and then nobody. And then as soon as it's dark, five people come through. It's happened to me so many times. (laughs) You're just like, oh, perfect landscape (laughs) photo, but that's it. Like if Microsoft needs a new desktop background yeah. you're good but totally landscape shot nailed it <laughs> but that's what i said to you at moab remember when i saw you and matt daniels at the end of the race and i was like rob couldn't you be a little faster <laughs> i don't know if you caught that because <laughs> i had the perfect moment and no one came by i was just like and you came this mile two, 245 like i'm just trying to make sure my feet go up so i don't wipe out and fall off the side of porcupine rim you you did actually you got a good photo of us no i did but it was like you know it was a good photo but in my head it was like if there was a photo that i wanted and yeah you just have to let those go those are just no we miss we miss i was a half an hour off between that and then the finish line in the light and yeah how we how we managed to get a finish line photo in the dark where I looked through all this footage and everything was, the lighting was awful. And it was like, you guys, I can just lean on to at least capture somewhat of the moment and not have it be like totally awkward lighting or something to that effect. Um, You guys are all true pros. pros (laughs) Yeah. Scott had a great lighting setup at the finish line. So that's our hot tip is there was a bunch of flashes going off. So that's why we got that shot of you. Um, but yeah I mean you have to think of all those things as a race photographer and you know you're often hauling lights and tripods and stuff out onto the trail because at the end of the day it doesn't matter what the weather conditions are you still have to pull something off you can't just be out there and go oh well that didn't work out so that's definitely part of the challenge and I saw you I mean I don't want to over focus on Bigfoot but I saw you before I know it was after click attack there was like a river crossing mm-hmm. and you were setting up yeah. and I was oh, man. sort of out of it. Um, was that not kind of sketchy in that area or was I like just mentally oh. out of it? It seemed like eerily quiet to the point where <laughs> something was eating all the wildlife that should have made noise. At least that's what in my head I was thinking. <laughs> You're like, wait. There's, like, there's no noise at all. Naturally, there should be a squirrel within like every four miles. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, that was fun. That river crossing, I had to cross that river like eight times because <laughs> I had a flash set up on one side of the river and a flash on the other side of the river, and the and of course the flash on the opposite side of the river from where I was kept turning off and going to sleep, and so I would like see headlamps coming down the side of this gully to cross the river. And I'd be like, ah, oh, shit, of course, the flash isn't working again. So I'd have to wait across. And it was like up to my thighs in freezing cold weather. And you're already cold because you're sitting there just trying to stay warm. 
and go turn the flash on and then wade across the river again, like holding on to the rope to get across and holding my camera on the other hand, just to like be ready for someone to come across and get that shot. So yeah, there's a lot. And that was at like one in the morning on day four. So I hadn't slept in a couple of days. There's definitely some moments there where I was questioning my life choices and being like, <laughs> yeah, I should really stick to photographing 10 Ks. <laughs> um, and, and just to fast forward to Tahoe 200, um, mm-hmm. not, not ideal conditions. I mean, especially you of all people without your GPS tracker and you think about that, but um, <laughs> was that a weird storm that blew through and like, how, how was it from your perspective? I know, unfortunately what happened to me, but <laughs> what, what was going on with you? Cause it, it doesn't sound like conditions were much better for you. Yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a random one. Cause like we did hear there was a storm coming, like everyone had heard that there might be snow but it was bluebird skies in California in uh, in September. And so you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll believe that Some when I rain. see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. So I was like sitting at the last aid station um, and from there runners go up to Ellis Peak or just shy of Ellis Peak and then they come down to the finish line. So they've got like 10 miles to go sitting there and it's totally blue sky right about when it's supposed to be snowing. And I'm going, okay, yeah, looks like a snowstorm to me. And then 15 minutes later, all of a sudden it had clouded over and it was snowing. And I was like, Oh wow. Like it just, it really did hit us by surprise, even though the forecast had said snow. Cause it that rain seemed was to come so out of nowhere. Cold. That rain was cold. It was oh, weird. It was weird how it cold was it was. Yeah. It was cold. It was slushy. And the problem was, is before it turned to snow, it was this like sideways slush rain. So all of you guys and all of us got totally soaked and then it started snowing, which is the worst combination because you're wet and cold. Like if it just started snowing fluffy flakes, then you're going to be okay because you're dry. But there was like no amount of Gore-Tex that could possibly keep you dry in that sort of rain. And of course, a lot of people didn't have their emergency layers on them. They were in a pack at an aid station because it didn't look like it was going to snow. So why would you carry your heavy duty Gore-Tex jacket with you? So it was total carnage. Like people were coming in from getting caught out in the storm before the last aid station. And they were just, I think it was Stephen Jones aid station. They were just shivering and blue lips and just dead to the world. Like I got some amazing photos of people that just didn't even see me. They were looking right through me. They were so cold. Um, I, yeah, and I'm then convinced I went hypothermic on that section. Yeah, and I was proud. running uphill just to like stay alive, just to stay warm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good for your splits. <laughs> yeah, PR PR that. Yeah, climb. that was awesome. That is not what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, it was crazy. Like volunteers were giving runners the shirts off their back just so they had something dry to get on because. I mean, if you don't have a dry base layer on, you're never going to get warm again. And uh, it was just, it was totally a mess. And I decided that instead of hibernating, I should go up to the top of Ellis Peak because clearly that was where all the action was going to happen. So was that, was that the big (laughs) climb in between before you dropped down into town? Yeah. 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 That's, that's where. Um, I was running for my life. That's exactly where it was. So why, why did you, um, decide to do that? And were you actually 
warm at all like as you're venturing out no <laughs> um i so i have this mantra that i kind of repeat to myself in these races which is if it were easy everyone would do it and i think it's really true because nowadays you can get a decent camera and you can take a decent photo just point and click but to get a great photo or to capture a great moment of human suffering or elation or whatever it is requires also putting yourself into those conditions. And if you just sit somewhere warm and comfy, you're not going to get that shot. So that's always been my philosophy when I approach races. And I think that's what sets a really good race photographer apart is like your willingness to go out and suffer because how else are you going to capture someone else going through that moment? So that was kind of my theory behind going up to Ellis Peak, even though I really didn't want to, because I was quite warm and comfortable down at the aid station. And uh, yeah, I, I hiked up there. It was all fresh snow, except for cougar tracks. And there was like a fresh set of cougar tracks that I followed all the way up to the top of the summit in the snow. And that was kind of crazy because I'm, even though I know that they're around, you don't really see a lot of signs of them normally. And to realize that one had passed through like 20 minutes before, I was like, cool, sure hope that I'm following him and he's not following me right now. You both, you know? you both are going after the runners. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, which runner's in front of me? And am I going to find them? <laughs> yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, and like I said, I'm sure they're around a lot more than we know. So it's not like all of a sudden I was extra scared of cougars, but it was like, okay, well, I, I know for sure that he's here right now as well as I am, and uh, we're both going to the same place. So I was kind of in my head as I hiked up there. And it was a total whiteout on Ellis. It was like you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The wind was howling. It was like sideways snowing on me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to hunker down by these rocks and wait for runners to show up. And the fatal flaw in my logic was that no runners wanted to leave the aid station because it was so cold and they were all hypothermic. <laughs> We must have missed each other by like 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Because this is exactly what happened. Like, yeah. Weird. No, and, and okay. I couldn't have seen you if you were like 10 feet away, right? Because it was so crazy up there. I, um, <laughs> I've never run that scared like uh, my whole life. Yeah? It was bizarre. And you didn't even know there was a cougar chasing you. <laughs> it probably saw me and was just like, oh, I'm going to pass. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, looks, <laughs> he looks a little yeah there's something off probably tastes bad um so, so yeah i sat up there yeah go and ahead. sat and sat and it was like i don't know close to three hours before i saw my first runner where i was just sitting up there totally exposed to the elements getting colder and colder by the minute and like I had GPS at that point where I had cell phone coverage so I could see the GPS trackers and I could see everybody sitting in the aid station. And I was just like willing people to leave the aid station and come up towards me. Just like, come on. Um, so it was just kind of funny sitting up there and like my, my great plan, which didn't really work out for the first little while because <laughs> no one else wanted to be up there. <laughs> but I think it, I think um, it paid off, right? Yeah, no, I ended up being up there for, um, I think I was up there for nine hours until I like literally couldn't feel my feet or my face. Um, and as I was coming down, actually, I got a really cool photo, one of my favorite from the race, which was a pacer pacing yeah. someone up this like ridge. And he was wearing a full Santa Claus outfit, which yeah. was amazing. Yeah. And like, I could just see this red thing coming towards me. And I was like, is that, 
is that Santa? Santa? (laughs) Oh, I've been up here way too long. (laughs) Totally. Um, So that was just like a really fun moment. And I guess the guy was a local. And when it started snowing, he ran home and literally got his Santa suit out. (laughs) That was super fun. I was like, that made it worth it. Um, Any other other photos come out besides Santa? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there were some really cool ones of people like emerging from the whiteout, just looking like they'd been through the apocalypse and like frozen beards and faces. And and what you have to remember is on the other side of that photo is someone that's been sitting up there for seven hours to take it. So I probably look just as horrific, you know, and just look (laughs) captured on camera. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I went back down. I had Scott's Sprinter van, which was a lifesaver. So I crashed in that for a few hours. And then... um, he joined me and we hiked back up for sunrise and that was definitely the the most special moment of that race and that photo actually at sunrise is what made the cover of ultra running magazine for their november issue and it was a pacer and his runner the pacer's wearing these great american flag shorts and they're like hiking up and this beautiful sunrise just took over the, st- the whole sky you know like after a storm it's just this serene calm there's snow on the ground the whole sky was pink and it was like this really really special moment and it was the first time that I'd actually seen the view up there too so I was like oh this is what it looks like when it's not sideways snow um so that was that was a really cool kind of reward for sitting in the storm all day the day before just to go back up there and to see it so magical and to get to experience that with these runners and they're like five miles away from the finish line and they've run 200 miles and there's like this magic in that moment. And you can really see that that's what kind of draws people back to the sport. And like those moments are so rare and you can't make that happen. It just happens. Like it's not a contrived thing. You can never go out and recreate it. It's just this really special shared moment. Well, I appreciate your, time and effort and suffering and perspective on getting the shot. Um, Cause I don't think it's really well understood what you guys go through. And I, I don't think I would have even got a taste of like what you go through to get the shot unless I'd done the triple crown and hiked mm-hmm. sections with you and seen like where you guys were set up and how that's in the middle of nowhere. Um, totally. And it was cool when Hammer Nutrition kind of was giving me the nod on, you know, the Endurance News magazine cover, and then mm-hmm. you and you and I had the pleasure of trying to get the shot <laughs> and working yeah. working together and like just knowing what we had to do. It was kind of a weird mindset to team up together and like try to try to get something good. And yeah, and I remember that section of Tahoe was super windy um, and not really where you'd want to hang out for a long period of time. But that ended up being so cool, the way that we hiked up together. And I mean, like you referenced at the very beginning of the podcast, we ended up having this really real and raw conversation on the way up. And it's the sort of conversation that you can only have with someone when you've been out there for four days, you haven't showered, you know, you smell like death, um, <laughs> but you're super vulnerable. And I think that that was a really cool connection that we had. And then that opens up a door to just be able to create something that's very real. And I mean, ended up on the cover of the Hammer Nutrition magazine for 
think it was the November issue. But yeah, it was just like the story behind that is often just as special as the photo you end up taking, right? And it's I think- it, we had one of those conversations where it just takes that one like segment together, either running or hiking, and a lot of times it's with another runner. In our case, you weren't, you know, competing. Um but yeah, you have those raw conversations where you don't even have the energy to hide anything like it's just kind of mm-hmm. stream of thought back and forth it's as real as it gets and uh yeah it's one of those your friends forever after you have those type of conversations yeah. so but isn't that kind of what we all love about ultra running just to bring it full circle it's like you know those moments where you can connect with a total stranger in the middle of nowhere and you go from being strangers to to feeling like you know the person and you know their whole life story is just because we're so vulnerable and so like just ourselves in those moments. You can't put up any filters or walls. You're just you. It's all you got. And to me, that's like one of the best parts of ultra running is that strips away a lot of those exactly, kind of societal barriers. Ex- that we put up. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. The trails, especially the long ultras really strip you down um as the race goes on and you get to interact with someone you know like as vulnerable as you can get basically Hmm. yeah i think just from a human level um that's so unique because you think of all the people we interact with in our everyday lives and you could go for coffee with someone for I don't know, 50 days in a row before you reach that level of intimacy that you can reach with someone in five minutes when you're in the middle of a snowstorm together, or you're just kind of battling the same demons together. And it's, to me, it's something that I've like taken from ultra running and then tried to apply the rest to the rest of my life is that desire to form more real and authentic connections with people, because I know what that feels like. And I know how good it feels to connect as humans on this level and to not have that bullshit filter on so yeah i I think it's and i I think a lot of people would say the same that you end up applying that to the rest of your life and how you want to live your life because it just seems like what's the point of being this other version of myself or trying to pretend i'm something else like just kind of get to the heart of it and exactly no no i think that's exactly what's going on there i think actually we started our hike um you saw me like in probably the highest point of my race at Tahoe, like sprinting into that aid station. And then my crew wasn't even there and we started hiking together. And I was like, I haven't showered in a really long time. So I'm like, really sorry that I smell so bad. And you were like, Rob, I haven't even showered in like four days. So (laughs) how many conversations start that way? (laughs) Oh, totally. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, I I think that's, I mean, I wanted to talk about Moab really briefly, but that was, that was kind of a beautiful moment in our conversation here. Moab, I just have this highlight, at least in my mind, I think it was Moab, where you were like, I don't know if you, like, were you doing extreme type camping? Or like, tell me how Moab (laughs) 240 was for you as a photographer. Oh, yeah, well. I mean, that was another case of um, it's a hard race to shoot because there's areas that you guys are on very similar terrain for quite a while, like on those um, 
long roads, but then there's also areas that are really far away from a road that require a lot of effort to get into, um, which is usually my jam. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so again, for that one, I decided I'd head out to this one section towards the end of the race. It's like the last 10, 15 miles of the race and just camp out there for a while to see everybody come through. And, and I really, as the, as the summer went on, I got to know everyone that was doing the triple crown and, you know, as you know, there's a little bit of a community and a camaraderie to that. So I really wanted to end the season by being out there to cheer everyone on for the last 10 miles and to see them finish oh, cool. this thing. Very cool. Yeah. So that was, it was, to me, I just like, I wanted to be part of it. I didn't want to be back at camp or sleeping or whatever. I was like, I'll just take my sleeping bag out there again and, and just be there. And, and that, and that was really special to see everyone come through. And I mean, so interesting at that stage of a race, like you're 230 miles in and there's so many hallucinations and I had runners like not know where they were and not know that they were in a race and like, Oh, it's just hilarious. Like I had to make people take trail naps cause they were hallucinating so badly, but it just, I felt really good about being there and being you out were there. Looking after for like, you were looking after <laughs> us in of. a sense. Cause that was a sketchy yeah. area. It was. And there's like in previous years, there's been runners that have gone off the trail and it's very like you're following the rim of this Canyon best basically back into town. And you want to have your wits about you. That's not a section where you want to be hallucinating and walking off of anything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I felt really good about being out there and just kind of checking in with seeing you all come through so I stayed out overnight again and all through the next day and man that was a fun a fun night because like as I was hiking up to set up my sleeping bag there was the scorpion on the trail okay I thought and, I, I, I was so yeah. sleep deprived I thought I remembered this and then I was questioning whether yeah. I was remembering that correctly I, yeah, I do have to hear a, about that oh my god there was a scorpion on the trail as I was kind of looking for a place to camp and I didn't know that uh, there was scorpions in that area. I'd kind of been assured that there wasn't anything that was going to kill me. And <laughs> so all of a sudden I'm like, well, I have my sleeping bag and my sleeping mat and no tent. Great. I'm going to have a great sleep tonight. So <laughs> all night as I was like lying there in my sleeping bag, totally exposed in the middle of the trail. And I like set up my sleeping bag right on the trail so that people would wake me up if I fell asleep. Um, I was just like examining the ground for scorpions. Every half an hour I set alarms and I would use my headlamp and do like a search of the area to see if I could see any scorpions. <laughs> um, it's just like those little things, which at the time you just get through cause you, you know, it's kind of irrelevant to like why you're out there, but they all have kind of pushed my comfort zone in so many ways. Cause I mean, Five, eight years ago, I never would have been bivying outside by myself in the middle of nowhere with scorpions, you know? So it's yeah. kind of these cool yeah, moments exactly. where your whole life ends up being challenged and pushed because you have a purpose to be out there. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of made me grow. <laughs> well, I have to say, having done the Triple Crown, you, Scott, and Howie are, you know, some of the best memories. Like, there's a lot of great memories and like just hanging out with you guys at certain points either in the race or before or after um or memories like i take away that yeah you guys are part of the community and hopefully the community values you guys um you know and it was just an amazing experience and i'm glad we got to even share some miles together so yeah 
I got to hear really briefly, where the heck are you? What are you doing right now? Um, (laughs) Why why are you uh, in a jungle or rainforest somewhere? So, yeah, I'm currently in a little hut in the middle of the jungle in Costa Rica, uh, outside of this town called Dominical. It's like a million degrees. I was saying before we turned on the podcast, Rob, that I closed all the windows because it's like super loud here, all the jungle noises. And I literally would have had crickets in the background of my conversation. I heard one actually at <laughs> okay. one point. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, it's such a cool place. Like I'm in this little hut on the top of a hill and you can see all these like birds and all the trees. And I was watching an iguana come down a tree trunk earlier. And um, yeah, there's like a pet parrot. Well, he's a wild parrot, but every morning he comes in and says hi. And like, I don't know, it's, it's a really cool place. But anyways, the are reason you living, I'm are you here, living in a, in like a Disney movie right now? Apparently, like kind of. that's yeah, amazing. Still things that can kill you. There's a lot of the creepy crawlies here that you're like, I don't want to share a bed with you. So Ugh, yeah, no, yeah, you're you're right. kind of you're on you're on the lookout. There's a lot of snakes in this area, um, and apparently there's a crocodile that lives in the river that I swam in yesterday. <laughs> oh, gosh. You're becoming a wild. I hope my parents don't here. listen to this podcast. <laughs> No, mom, there's nothing down here that could kill me. Mm -mm. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so I'm I'm down here because for the last three years, I've photographed the Coastal Challenge, which is, I mean, if you haven't heard of it, you should look it up. It's the perfect antidote to winter because it's like a week of heaven and beaches in Costa Rica. Really easy to train for, you know, if you live somewhere snowy. (laughs) Yeah. But (laughs) you run the stage race. Uh, You run like 30 to 50K every day. And every night we camp somewhere new. Usually it's like on a beach or pretty close to a beach. And I absolutely love it. Like you you end up in the areas of Costa Rica that tourists don't really go to at all. And uh, it's just stunning terrain. And it's really a community thing because like every night everyone camps together and you eat all your meals together. And uh, I just come down now because I love it so much. So, so yeah, I'm down here just taking advantage of a few extra weeks of training and work and humidity adjustment. <laughs> okay, and that's my last question is how is your knee doing? Cause I know you had a, yeah. a bone <laughs> bruise of some sort there. And then are you actually planning on doing any races in 2020 or any kind of like adventures for yourself that are not work related? Oh yeah. Well, my knee is doing better. Um, Good. in true, klutzy form I, I like to take a big fall every year so so last year it was um during the summer in whistler on a training run and it was about 100 feet away from where i had fallen and broken my toe the year before or two years before which is kind of super ironic but yeah. i ended up on crutches for a while and that kind of derailed my running plans for the end of last summer i was supposed to race the whistler alpine meadows 100 and ended up spectating instead so um yeah I mean I I think at this point I care less about that but it's one of those moments where it sucks because you put all that training in and I really do feel very strong as a runner I'm just not getting a lot of chances to race because I'm either photographing races or injuring myself (laughs) but uh yeah anyways it's, it's doing fine now so I'm back to running and I'm not training for anything in particular uh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working a lot of the races that I would have wanted to run. But I think 
Uh, I'm looking at a couple FKT options for later on in the year. And honestly, some of the places that I'm going to travel to are looking really amazing. So I think I'm just going to keep trying to get those adventures in. And if it works out to, to put a race in there, then I will. But I don't know, I'm pretty happy being on this side of the camera. And like, I'm still involved in the community and getting that fix, as it were. But I don't, I don't feel this like deep seated need to show up and race right now. So yeah, I don't know. I could randomly show up on a start line, but I'm also just as happy adventuring. It's a good place to be. Well, I, I appreciate you taking so much time. Hopefully you're not sweating in there too bad with all the windows closed and everything. I kind, um, of, I kind of am. You should see my hair is sticking out like it was permed. I'm, like just, <laughs> I'm getting you ready for your FKT. This is heat training, okay? Totally. Um, a, it's like a <laughs> session. <laughs> um, my goal is within the next two years to do a film with you of some sort, um, hopefully overseas in some crazy location. I think it it's just natural, even if it's a film about you f- filming and doing photography, <laughs> a meta, meta film. Um, but yeah, just stay in touch and, and stay safe and heal up and just, yeah, yeah, I look forward to seeing what you have in store for this year. And I'm sure, I'm sure I'll see you somewhere. Totally. Yeah. I think we'll share a few trails together this year. So thanks for having me, Rob. That was really fun. And that was episode 124 with Hillary Matheson. Definitely follow her on Instagram and in social. Her pictures are absolutely amazing. Big thank you again to the show's newest sponsor, Kogala. Check out the show notes for a link to their website if you're interested and a discount code for their lights. Same with Exoskin. I will leave a link in the show notes along with a discount code. Big thank you again to Hammer Nutrition. Always enjoy working with them. And Candace Burt and her crew, Destination Trail, you'll see me doing over 450 miles of their races this year. So big thank you to you guys. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. Don't forget to enjoy your training. See you next week.